0: Nomen Patris, Fili, Spiritu Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu
1: in mulieribus. Es
0: Benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus.
1: Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus. nunc et nostre. Amen. in orum Amen.
0: Nomen Patris, fidi, spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudet tu Jesus Christus. In secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome to the Terror of Demons morning show. Together with co-host Kennedy Hall. Kennedy, how you doing, brother?
1: I'm living the dream.
0: Fantastic. What's the uh latest on the Canadian Uprising? You guys <laughs> free yet?
1: Uh it's complicated. Um, yes and no. Um, it's definitely had tons of effect. Um, our <sighs> Our, my province of Ontario and Quebec are probably the worst ones for politics in the country, we're that we're like two massive blue states. Um, uh, even though we have a conservative premier, so he did come out and say we're going to have all the measures scrapped by March first. No, March thirty first. All the measures, um, which means probably the like masks and which I've never worn, but anyway, probably the masks and. Things like capacity restrictions, you know, like the the NHL stadium can only have eleven thousand versus eighteen thousand, because it's all very scientific. Like that apparently, like something is going to be in place till March 31st. Um, but that the vaccine passports, or as I what there actually are medical apartheid, uh, that will be um done very soon, apparently. Now the thing is. They'll always say it has nothing to do with the truckers, right? But it's like all of a sudden they all just decided to change their mind. The science, the political science evolved, you know. And um, however, I was just reading uh, because today in parliament, um, the conservatives are forcing a vote on the federal mandates, much like in America, there's sort of a federalist thing. So as much as I want to blame everything on Trudeau, he actually never enacted a single vaccine passport for a province you know like nothing that that technically has nothing to do with him i mean it's him because the fish rots from the head and then he should go but but he never did it right technically the only things that he's done have been you know like border stuff and uh you know like in theory if the prime premiers wanted to be sane you know we would have a completely free country except we wouldn't be able to leave or fly which sounds unfree, but you could, I mean, my life in Ontario could be completely normal, even if he wanted to be crazy in his ways. Okay. Um, If that makes sense. So, but they forced uh, the conservatives have forced to vote. Um, And that's happening today on the federal mandates. So for basically vaccine mandates for federal travel and stuff, like I can't fly to see my sister in BC. Um, I can't get on a boat. Um, I could I could leave Canada technically. You could find a way. Um, you'd have to drive and you'd have to have a special visa to get into the States or you'd have to have permission. Although everyone's going to the border now and testing it and they're not checking for passports going into the United States, like vaccine passports,
0: um,
1: apparently, because the American uh, security border guards obviously don't have access to your Canadian medical records. So they ask you, for something like it's 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 really just a formality because it's like mm-hmm. you could hold, you could show them a cable bill it's like this is my proof of vaccination you know um that's what i've heard and then when you and then people are now testing it or they're coming back into canada as citizens and they get stopped by the border person they're like are you vaccinated And they're like no uh okay uh do you been tested no did you sign the, the, any of the forms no and they're like i'm a canadian citizen the constitution says you have to live back in the country, and then the people are, then the border guards just kind of say, "Well, um, okay, well, make sure you go home and isolate." And they're like, "No, <laughs> just drive away." <laughs> There's a video going viral. This this girl did it, and like they can't do it. So anyway, it's um. But apparently Trudeau was meeting today with all the premiers, all the first ministers of the provinces and the, and the territories, um, with the potentiality of enacting the War Measures Act. And that's what his, so he wants to prove he's not Fidel Castro's son. Um, So he wants to actually act like his, his, um, his Canadian father, who the last time the War Measures Act was enacted in Ontario, um, or in Canada, was during the FLQ, La Front de la Libération du Québec. It was basically like a Quebec terrorist organization. That was in the 1970s. They actually did kidnap and kill a politician. They got pretty insane. Um, so they had the War Measures Act. So on campuses and stuff, you saw guys walking around with AK-47s and everything. It looked very Cuba-esque, pun intended. And um, so uh, on the same day, Trudeau was calling an emergency meeting to meet with the premiers to probably enact the War Measures Act. But on the same time, the there's a vote coming to scrap the mandates. Last thing I'll say about Canadian inside baseball here of politics: we have a minority parliament. And you can do this thing called a non-confidence vote where the other parties basically um, say we have no confidence in you anymore and you don't have a majority so we're calling a new election. I think that's going to happen. I think today uh, if the vaccine mandates are not dropped federally from the vote um, and if the War Measures Act is considered, I think that the parties will do a no-confidence vote and we'll have an election within two months. That's what I think. And then I think the Conservatives, even though they're terrible in some ways, I think they'll win in a landslide uh, because they'll jump on that freedom train because it's politically advantageous now. And we'll see. But all all that's because of the truckers. Who knows?
0: All right. Well, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Go truckers. (laughs) Sweet.
1: Did the truckers win the Super Bowl last night, too?
0: (laughs) Yeah, the truckers won the Super Bowl last night.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. Anyway, what's going on in uh, Whitmer? Wippertopia down there, on the, other side of the yeah.
0: Wippertopia do, doing great. I, I just had COVID, uh, it was uh pretty mild, still, uh, still have uh COVID fatigue and all that fun stuff, but uh, yeah, things are good. Got through it uh without any vaccination or whatever. I just
1: uh, that's not possible. You're lying, did
0: uh, yeah. I i <laughs> I, I popped the pills, did some supplements, you know, okay. kept my immune system up, and uh, it was like a uh, two-day thing that was it so that was my first time with COVID
1: so well, I'm glad we locked down civilization because it might have been it might have been three days if we didn't <laughs> yeah it
0: might have been three days <laughs> yeah and uh so welcome to Septuagesima it mm-hmm. is a very special time of year it's that time of year again Septuagesima that's right
1: yeah it's already it's crazy
0: so Septuagesima is is upon us so it's today is St. Valentine's Day and uh we have this wonderful calendar from litidithome.com. Um uh, get that for your family and uh Septuagesima is pre-lent. So get ready for Lent. Time to get started and get prepared. Prepare for the preparation. Also shout out to Trinitine Brewing. They just sent me a, a a a tin tacker of uh Blessed Carl. Uh yeah, so you could check out Tridentine Brewing, a new Catholic beer company. We have uh, they're coming on one Peter Five actually this mm-hmm. week. We're gonna do uh, beer, a Catholic tradition. That'll be a great I've had their beer. It's
1: good, uh, a great podcast.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, yes, I've I've had the Tridentine Brewing as well. So the full uh,
1: one's my favorite, the Red Ale, Irish Red Ale. ale.
0: I like uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel.
1: I didn't have that one. They sent, they sent it up to me like it was, I mean, sent beers like sending nuclear plutonium across the border. <laughs> and uh, it was really good. I really liked the Irish Red Ale. It was my favorite. Sweet.
0: Wait, so uh reminder to become a patron, Meaning of Catholic, patreon.com slash Meaning of Catholic. You get a 12-part series that we're concluding this week on Jews, Judaism, and Israel. All the controversial topics that YouTube doesn't want you to talk about. That's a 12-part series. You get that as a patron. You get the five-part series of Christ Against the Occult. You get uh, free books. You get access to the guild chat. So patreon.com slash Catholic. You can also donate at meetingofcatholic.com. And we're talking about the Terror of Demons book by Kennedy Hall. The newest Mm -hmm. re-release from Tan is right here. He's got it. I, my copy is in the mail somewhere. So we're talking today about toxic masculinity or masculinity, not toxic. Masculinity, not toxic. What is effeminacy? Mm-hmm. So tell us about that, Kennedy. I think when you first started the book, you had some comments about toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I think well, I then- saw a... Uh, actually, let me start off with this. I think I saw it was a Babylon Bee where it was like uh husband takes out toxic masculinity, makes his wife change the tire.
1: Yeah. That's a good yeah. one. There was a, oh, there was some contemptible Canadian politician in Manitoba who, uh, it went viral. Like, I don't know what this guy was doing. He's such a, nah, he was a fool. He put a, a picture or a short video of his wife shoveling the snow. Manitoba is like, it's like northern minnesota but more north like there's a lot of snow and cold <laughs> up there okay and uh she come and it was you know he's like some labor or something or other minister there in the provincial parliament and he was trying to do this whole like my wife is a hero pro woman feminist hear me roar thing and uh she was out shoveling the snow after getting back from a night shift as a nurse and he's like this woman never stops like what a hero and everyone's like why are you not shoveling the snow <laughs> What are you doing? I mean, like are you he's not in a wheelchair or something. That'd be one thing. But he's just right. anyway. Um so uh he was not being talk he was he was being uh good masculinity according to the culture by letting his wife do everything and not doing anything. Um okay, so the American psychiatrist or uh, the APA, whatever if it's psychiatry or psychology, I can't remember, they labeled um they went so far as the last year and a half or so they actually called masculinity itself toxic. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the, there is a attack, I don't know, conspiracy, whatever you want to call it. The, the war against being a man is real. It, uh, it is a big deal. And, um, that's sort of from the external perspective, but then from the internal, the, um, the war that we wage against ourselves is really a matter of virtue and vice as it always has been, you know, this is, this is why the ancients have something to say just as much as the guys like, you know, this is why people tune into Joe Rogan today. I mean, for all his faults, he's, he's appealing to that urge for men. They want to do things and be distinctly men and, and whatever that means. And it's, um, It's a very easy question to answer if you read the Bible and you are steeped in traditional thought as much as you can be, um, as well as obviously in the faith, but in in more in the philosophical sense. Um, But we've rejected all that. So our society is sort of floundering, trying to figure out what a man is and so forth. And so masculinity at the end of the day is the perfection of the male. That's what it is. You know, there's certain characteristics, certain temperaments, certain proclivities that men are born with. There are obviously exceptions to the rule, but that's what makes it a rule. As people don't understand, you know, they'll say, "Well, it's ninety-eight of you know ninety-eight out of a hundred young men with boys. When you put a tool in front of them, they like to play with it. and two two of them don't. So it's not. It's like, well, yeah, that proves the rule. That's how things work. Um, So you know, there are certain characteristics that men have, but the major vice, in my opinion, or the major way of life that basically destroys. Being a real man is the vice of effeminacy, and Saint Paul actually deals with this. And I have this at the beginning of of the chapter. This is uh, chapter two in my book. Okay, and uh, not that uh, you have to get this book in order to have a good Lent, but if you did get this book, you would have a better Lent. I'll put it that way.
0: Get get the book. Get a get the book. Yeah. Have a good Lent. There you go. There we go.
1: And uh, so, I have a quote at the beginning of every chapter, and and at the beginning of chapter two, which is called Effeminate Men, I have from 1 Corinthians chapter six, and St. Paul says, know you not that that the unjust shall possess, shall not possess, excuse me, the kingdom of God. Do not err, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of heaven. So what's interesting there is when I wrote the book and put it out, uh, one of the biggest criticisms from the woke crowd was that when I said effeminacy must be eradicated, that I meant all homosexual men must be killed. That was something people thought. And uh, I'm thinking, well, you've never read the book uh, because... Here I have a quote from St. Paul who distinguishes between liars with mankind, which means, you know, with, with men with men, um, and the effeminate. So it's possible for men of all stripes to be effeminate, um, of all proclivities, but effeminacy is the key. Uh, effeminacy, as we've talked about many times in the show in the past, it means a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. And uh, basically that just means you're not willing to do hard things in order to do the good thing. Um, and that's how it always manifests itself. And um, here is a, a verse from Three king, uh, Third Kings, and uh, it says, "He took the effeminate out of the land, and he removed all the filth of the idols which his fathers had made." So effeminacy is clearly not a good thing. Um, God taking the effeminate or allowing the effeminate to be taken out of the land to restore it. So, um, to summarize, masculinity is the perfection of of human men. Um, whereas effeminacy is sort of the vice that goes against that thing because ultimately we see the most um, excellent example of a, of a man is Jesus Christ. But, you know, think for a second about every hero, every masculine hero of every story you've ever read that wasn't some weird, like, woke, strange antihero thing. Everyone from, you know, knights in shining armor to even modern stories like the born identity or the, you know, or, or Bruce Willis movies or something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's funny. Even if you take a modern Hollywood movie, they just, they can't sell a story about a man who's effeminate and is a hero because no one will buy it. They just can't, mm-hmm. even in today's world, in the woke, whatever they've got to put out a story where Bruce Willis or like Liam Neeson, like saves his daughter from terrorists and, suffers and wins the day and is virtuous and eschews a harlot or something like that there's always a there's always temptation he always has to get over it that's just built into understanding what a man is and um that's where we see the the even in today's broken world we we still see that even those woke leftists they can't help but write something like a, a real masculine hero into into films and everyone still wants to watch it and everyone still wants to pay for it Um, so it's deep, it's deeply built into us.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point about the, the hero, the heroic, uh, archetype must, which is essentially a man who does hard things for the sake of some greater good, greater than himself. Yeah. He's doing some kind of hard thing for, uh, the country or for saving XYZ person Uh, he's risking his life. Um, he's being tough. He can mm-hmm. take the punches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, so I, basically, boiling down that masculine virtue, it's basically fortitude, yes, strength, uh, perseverance, toughness. Those things right there are is is in the archetypal uh, masculine hero, even in today's world. I think that's really. Funny, as you say, they can't even create something. They can't create a woke male and sell him, because nobody would want even one. Not as that. a hero. Not as a hero. Not as you a can, hero, at least. Yeah,
1: you can you can sell him as a like a comedian or something, but he makes fun of himself the whole time. Yeah, you know, you can have him as a a tragic figure of a show, um but it's like some weird artsy HBO mm-hmm. thing, and even then, that's not going to have mass appeal um you know it's like think about the Super Bowl I didn't watch it last I'm not anti I love football like I mean as a sport I mean it's it's awesome I I grew up playing it and, you know culture aside I'm I'll probably watch the highlights today I'm excited to see I saw it was a close game and that's fun they're very impressive athletes um but even then um it's funny the juxtaposition of it's funny to think in a city like la which is like the wokest city possible. Um, with the still have the dumb rules for a lot of COVID stuff. And, but even all the woke crowd flocks to watch this game, which again, take the culture, take, take the professional sporting, you know, silliness away from things and just think about what's actually happening out there. It is the most, it's one of the most masculine sports you could imagine in the good sense of the word in sense of, there's massive camaraderie. There's huge self-sacrifice. There's a faith. you're facing grave danger. Um, it's very cerebral. Um, there's a huge hierarchical aspect. I mean, it's basically like a, it's like a, it's like a placeholder for military action football with all everything from the, the different specializations of the different soldiers on the field. And, and uh the strategizing of, of of thinking about your opponent i mean the the in, the intensity that goes into planning for an nfl game is it's insane i mean you could probably take all those coaches and put them in business and they'd probably you know be business tycoons they just know how to manage people and and face uh, uh obstacles like no one else and everyone flocks it's like the biggest event and it really is like watching obviously on the surface it's just this thing guys running around with the ball but when you know the game and you go these are i mean they're like sports navy seals or something like that that's the way they are and so anyway it's um it's remarkable that uh we just can't kill this thing and it feels ancient too like think of uh uh, troy or hector and achilles Mm -hmm. you know what do we see in there you know hector is the hero of that story even though he loses Um, And you don't really have any sympathy for Achilles because he's not being honest. He's got a superpower, essentially. And why is Hector having to go to battle? He's having to go to battle because his brother committed, essentially, adultery, Mm -hmm. basically, or facilitated it, you know. And so it's a story about the virtuous man who sacrifices himself against the man who's cheating to make up for the sin of his brother who gave in to his effeminate vice. Like it's, that story is the story of Western civilization. There's a reason why in Christian cultures, uh, Chesterton talks about this in Everlasting Man. Men will be named Hector, but they won't be named Achilles. Mm-hmm. That's you know? true. There's
0: no, no Achilles. Yeah,
1: that's right. And he's a loser in the sense of the word. Like he lost, but he's the hero because he did it valiantly. And anyway, this is this is baked into the cake. So effeminacy goes against this. Um. And I'll just read a quick thing here for people because femininity does not mean femininity. As femininity is a perfection, like masculinity, femininity is a different word entirely. And its etymology, we find in its in its etymology, we find things like softness in the Latin in the Latin usage. The Greek word for femininity in the New Testament is malakia, which means softness. And I already talked about the definition. Um, so think about the men today who are ruining your life. Are they effeminate or are they masculine? Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, I don't know, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, go on. I mean, who else? Uh, I just, they're all the same. They're like, they're they're all a platonic form of effeminacy to me at this point. Um, And that's actually interesting that you mentioned fortitude because Plato tried to, he tried to uh, theorize to almost like a platonic form of a super virtue, but he couldn't the there still was the four cardinal virtues and sort of like the seven deadly sins that was that was known by the ancients um where but C.S. lewis said that um courage is every virtue at its testing point which you basically said that ultimately the marker of the man is is fortitude which is courage um so that speaks to what you were saying um but if you think about every every villain and let's go back to these stories every villain of every story uh you can't make a villain and make it you can't make a villain believable as a villain in a story if he doesn't have a vice think about that for a moment uh every bond movie even though bond himself has his vices um but even there when it push comes to shove he'll jump off a cliff for the for the country sort of thing yeah right right. um Every, every villain in the Marvel movie or whatever, pick your story, uh, in crime movies, you know, uh, the, the, the gangster villain or so forth. Um, even think about Batman. Batman is actually a really interesting one. Um, because, uh, especially in the new movies, which I thought were pretty decent. Um, Bruce Wayne is actually really virtuous. That's kind of the thing. He's, he's basically a teetotaler. He doesn't, he's a celibate. And um, and he doesn't kill and do sorts of things. Um, he's, he's a philanthropist. He, you know, He's basically actually quite a virtuous fella, whereas his villains are always very deranged. You know, They're very smart, but that one thing always brings them down. Their vice always destroys them, whether it's their hatred, whether it's their perversion, whether it's their attachment to money or something like that. that that's why he can always get them because Bruce Wayne himself doesn't really have a vice in a sense. In the natural sense, he's very much a, a very perfected man um, and doesn't have any attachments, whereas his villains always do. Even again, in today's woke Hollywood culture, they will show uh, like a Denzel Washington movie or something. You know, His villains will be running prostitutes or something and, and, and have a vice that way. Um, because it's not believable to people that a good man would be effeminate. And it's not believable to people that a bad man would not have vice. Even in our culture. So um, effeminacy is at the root of basically all of the problems in our world, in my opinion, because what we have essentially is we have, uh, we have a world where, I mean, good men have not stood up for a really long time. And I'm not talking about uprisings or rebellions. I mean, that's what happens when you haven't been standing up enough. You have to end up doing that, you know. Um, everyone loves the truckers and things, and I do too, and there's some very good men there. Um, but why did we get to that point? Well, we got to that point because of the four hundred steps that got us there. Um, anyway, so um, before I go on to the roots of effeminacy, did you have anything you want to talk about?
0: Oh yeah, I think I think that's it's just really interesting. Like I, I I really don't like James Bond because he he hmm. the um, model of James Bond. I haven't seen a Bond movie for like ten years or something. But yeah, it's good. like um, it, it is. This heroic male, but then he he you know commits fornication and he, you know, kills some people in vengeance because he feels like it. Um, but like you said, when push comes to shove, like at the climax of the movie where he's about mm-hmm. to sacrifice his life to save the country and the world, if he were to turn around and say, Oh no, I'm gonna go with the Bond girl or whatever, or go drink my martini or whatever because i'm going to choose pleasure over duty then everybody would forsake james bond you know it'd be be a well this this guy's terrible like he didn't do his duty like everybody expects him to ultimately do his duty in the end even though he's going to be a little bit slimy on the way there because they they create this little image of him um so i think what you're saying is is so spot on that um the world wants masculine men to actually do their duty to do the hard thing for the sake of others. And so if, if really if all the men were doing their duty uh, I think there would be a great, a great good for families and society. And there's also a sort of a masculine shame attached to that where men would pressure each other to do their duty because it would, People would men would be embarrassed to not do their duty, that would be embarrassing, that would be unmanly. Um, but there are, there's been ways that they've been able to, like speaking of the Super Bowl again, hip hop stars, for example, like rock stars and those type of celebrities are very effeminate. Yeah. They don't, all they do is rap about the fact that they have money or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's a they're just pretty very effeminate figures and the whole culture of popular music is trying to create this attachments to all sorts of vices or whatever and even the music music itself um and so they're and they're not only that but there are all these other att- things to get attached to both unlawful things that we could talk about but there's also just lawful things like television is not in itself sinful, but it can be attachment, uh, food. Uh, what, what attachment? I mean, this, here's, here's a great Lenten topic to understand and fight against here is so many different methods of being coming attached to pleasures. So to becoming a phenomenon.
1: hmm. Yeah. And, um, it's funny back to the bond thing. Uh, he always has to sacrifice the vice because we see it, we see it as the the, the female love interest in the show, um, but it's an unlawful love interest because it's a it's out of wedlock and that sort of thing. Um, you would not believe he was a good man if he sacrificed his wife. Think about it if you watch mm. the movie, but because it is someone he's having a dalliance with, we understand that that has to be secondary because you have to let the vice go yeah secondary to to the mission right that's That's right true right um and and this is why you know everyone knows my political leanings I'm, I'm, i'm i'm whatever but i still advocate for hierarchy and order in all of our lives and it's necessary um and and uh again back to sports this is why those things fill such a void now they can become an idol and things like that in our society um but this necessity to have, what you mentioned about having this sort of healthy shame from other males in your life, um, these structures that have been put into place over time, and they can change obviously, but the root is very similar. You know, football teams are not new, or sorry, not are not old in the in the historical sense. I mean, they're one hundred and fifty years old or something. Um, but there's always been things like that going on when groups of males would get together. And the nice thing about those structures is that it facilitates a very organic, let's call it healthy shame, because it's the results are seen in your performance. You know, I remember like I remember one thing that got me when I was in my last—I was twenty-two. It was in my senior year, and I was playing university. And there was a young kid who was like eighteen or nineteen, and he was—he was a superstar. He went on. He went on to—I think he might have played in the CFL. Anyway, he was a linebacker. I was a fullback. So we were always against other in these drills. And he would beat me like five out of 10 times. Um, and one day I just was so, I had to beat him, you know, just whatever. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I, I barely did. Like, and he, again, he was three or four years younger than me. It was not impressive that I was able to white knuckle it and finally beat him in a drill because he was much younger than me. And um, he said, Kennedy, do you not like me? I said, no, man, I just had to beat you because you beat me so many times, you know, and um, he kind of got it because I, I felt embarrassed at some of the things he did to me in drills, like his quickness and his first step and things. And I get popped and I was like, my goodness gracious, this kid is schooling me. Um, and no one said anything about it, but it was just known. It was, yeah, you got beat. And uh, and then you couldn't run and hide because I had to go into the drill again, you know, and um, anyway, that's that's built into the thing. So the roots of effeminacy. Okay, I have this as part of chapter two. And if you haven't read the book, um, I tried to make it as useful and practical as possible. I tried to make it something where um, you could easily open up a chapter and you say, what was that thing? What was that thing? And you, you flip two pages and you find it. So it's not like some, some academic tome where it's going to take you to go to the index or something. It's pretty simple. So I talk about the roots of femininity. There's actually a quote here from Father Ripperger. And I, I took a lot of quotes from his uh, talk, How to Raise a Man, which is a great talk. And he says the real man is the man of virtue. With virtue comes interior self-discipline and self-control. It is a hallmark of a real man. He can engage in things that are hard and arduous and still remain steadfast. A man who wilts is effeminate. This is what we've been talking about. As with all, as, this is me speaking here. As with all sinfulness, we find ourselves looking to the fall. When sin entered the world through the actions of Adam and Eve, Saint Thomas, along with the others, with other saints and theologians, states that the original sin is pride. This should give us pause when we see pride as something worthy of a parade. (laughs) Could there be anything more offensive to God than celebrate the most fundamental of sins with a display that glorifies sexual deviancy? At any rate, the original sin is pride, which is the primary sin of Adam and Eve. Pride is traditionally defined as a desire to exalt oneself beyond what is appropriate for one's state or condition. This is demonstrated in the third chapter of Genesis as the serpent tempts Eve. The devil says, For God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Eve is attracted to the possibility of seeking equality with God, which is the sin that cast Lucifer out of heaven in the first place. So, the first sin, the fathers and scholastics and theologians and so forth, they tell us is pride, which is pretty simple. But it's not, but you know, you tell that to the average person and they'll say, why is it pride? And it's because of that definition of pride is to exalt yourself to a position you're not supposed to be in. Uh, pride is not the same thing as arrogance. Pride is not the same thing as being cocky. It's not the same thing as being high on yourself. Um, pride is believing that you ought to have a position that you're not supposed to have. Uh, this is why Lucifer says, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do what you want, God, because I'm equal with you, essentially. Um, so inherent in that first sin is the sin of pride. But what's also inherent in it is the sin of lust um, I never knew this until I was researching you know three, four years ago for this book, but um, I never thought of this, but what we see in this in this um, narrative in this story of Adam and Eve, which I believe to be true, but let's just take it at face value for sort of a metaphorical or allegorical purpose. what we see is, There is something that is pleasing to the eyes because it talks about the fruit looking good to eat and and, and biblical shorthand There's more to it than just it looks nice. Um, It's also something that's going to provide some sort of sensation. Fruits are delicious, you know. Um, So it's something attractive that you're not supposed to go after. That's lust. That's essentially what that sin is. Um, But. At the root of all these sins, if there could be a platonic form of sin, it would be something like pride. Because ultimately, even if you say it implicitly to yourself, you know, you say to yourself, I'm not supposed to be a sinner because that's not my, that's not why I'm here, but I'll do it anyway. And I'll put myself into a position where I basically am above the moral law. It's a sin of pride. Um, so that is the root of the original sin. And from there, uh, if you think about how Adam reacted, you know, what did he do? He didn't stop Eve from doing it. Now, obviously, she had free will, and no one's suggesting that. I don't know. I don't know. Would what, what the theologians say you should have restrained her? I have no idea. Um, but if you think about what goes on in that moment when Eve is dialoguing with the devil even there uh that's a prideful activity because why would you think you could talk to somebody with like the highest evangelical intelligence why is adam not there saying this is enough i'll step in you know this is this is and it's not to say that adam wouldn't have been physically impressive he probably was i mean he was without corruption of the body he was probably like michelangelo's david for goodness sake um but it was this ability, this 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 willingness to acquiesce to an interior disposition that manifests itself in an exterior activity that was uh, effeminate, and um, ultimately, what ends up happening is it destroys the male female order, which we'll talk about. Did you have anything okay. you want to add? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so Adam is effeminate because he he and Eve exalt themselves above the moral law yeah uh i think this brings up an important part about effeminacy and that is the relationship of the man to his woman because sometimes a man must do his duty and in the moment his woman might not like that uh for whatever reason Mm -hmm. it might cause a a argument perhaps and many men want to keep peace in their household rather than doing something that may spark some friction, but it's the right thing to do. Um, so this is an example of effeminacy because you're addicted to the pleasure of peace, of, of the absence of conflict, but that's not actual peace because peace is actual justice. It's basically the absence of conflict um you want that more than you want your particular duty to do your duty as a man so adam didn't do his duty to protect his wife eve against the serpent um because he was effeminate he he wanted to keep uh, an absence of conflict with his woman rather than
1: yeah and uh start a conflict well and um it destroys the male-female order because, you know, we see this many places in the Bible, but it's baked into the natural law as well, um, where there's this subjection, submission, right? And and again, this is, yeah, this is one of those things that'll get you canceled. Even priests, when this comes up in the Novus Ordo calendar, they'll they'll take, you can actually take the short reading. You don't have to read the whole thing when it, if you don't want to about uh, women submit to your husbands. Um, But this is, this is... It's only there's no such thing as two people being in charge at the same time and making the tough decision. Like you can't do it, right? Um, even if you do something like that, you de- you have to delegate to somebody. But the person who's saying that to be delegating is de facto in charge because <laughs> they've delegated it. You know, um, men and wife are, are are called to submit to one another, in the, so so for in in the in the sense of uh, a mutual submission for you know, submitting to either, to, to submitting to one another as a cross, not that your wife is a cross, your husband is a cross here on Valentine's Day, um, in a, in the sense of, you know, they're torturous to you, I uh, <laughs> hope. Um, but we do sanctify each other. You know, in a sense, I submit to the desires of my children, and, and or their needs, at least, not the desire, I shouldn't submit to their, their petty desires, but I do submit to them. I mean, they, I mean goodness gracious how many times a day do you submit to your kids you know what they need and that's that's fine that's servant that's service right that's 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 baked into the cake that is something that St Paul says um because he does say be, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ but then he goes right on to say let the women let women be subject to their husbands as to the lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church um, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify cleansing it by the laver of water, the word of life, uh, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Um, so I always say to people, it's like, They get upset about the whole submit to your husband's thing. It's like, well, read what he means by that. What he means is you're supposed to act like Jesus Christ. and What are you supposed to act? We know what Jesus Christ did. He died. He he went to the cross and all those sorts of things. He took the sins of the world. That would include the sins of your wife. And and you know what I mean? Like if if you think about it that way. Um, And also we know Christ is the new Adam and and, and compared to Adam who's the old Adam. And um, if Christ is having to sort of right the ship and and fix the sin that was there then taking on of the sacrificing and being the head of the human race is showing that adam failed in his in his head of the human race because of this effeminacy this um, reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure the tree was pleasurable the fruit was pleasurable no conflict with the wife was pleasurable and to use to get in the way of that would have caused suffering and that's essentially what was what was uh, missed there Um, and we see when we continue um, this exp- uh, this explanation uh, of the fall, this, it's the prime example of marital confusion. It has a usurpation of leadership by Eve and a neglect of duty and service by Adam. You have to think of that moment. I mean, how okay, people will say, was he a snake, was he a serpent, was he a dragon, whatever. However the her- serpent, however the devil manifests himself, I would imagine it would have been pretty striking. It wouldn't have been like, oh, Eve's just sort of sitting beh- beside a garter snake on the ground and whispering to herself. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it probably w- the word that's used in Hebrew. Uh, um, Scott Hahn, he's pretty good with that stuff, and he actually said it was this word Nahash, which is I think used in Revelation. Um, so it's more like a serpentine predator, almost like a dragon, um, but we manifest it as a snake in most of our art. So that's how we see it. In any case um Adam was right there with her at the time as well we know that because it says immediately as she took the fruit she shared with him so how do you share with fruit with somebody you take it and you pass it to them you can't pass them unless they're right there also there was you know no else in the garden so like there's another party going on somewhere else and um so Adam was witnessing this thing happen so there's multiple levels of of a disordered relationship happening here for one, the wife is dealing with the intruder while the husband watches. Secondly, right. the wife is... the Secondly, the wife is... Um, basically saying, we should do this sin. And the husband says, okay. And third... Um, immediately after, what do we see? We see that Adam himself flees danger but then he also flees responsibility Mm -hmm. because what happens after this god comes into the garden and even there there's there is a great talk somewhere i think i do have it bookmarked on something anyway about um maybe i don't hear somewhere else um but there is a scott does a great talk on on that and uh him being a biblical guy he goes into the words and things and he talks about the word footsteps that's used when God's walking in the garden. And apparently it's it's more like if you were to hear, like in those Jurassic Park movies with like the stomping, you know. Uh, it's more like that. It's it's like the sound of helicopters, you know. Yeah. Um, so this, this God coming into the garden, it was a very noticeable thing. It was a very imposing thing. <clears throat> and what does he say? Well... He asks Adam where are you and Adam immediately blames his wife. He doesn't just say I'm over here god uh, I didn't do it. Um he goes no it's not my fault it's her fault. Right. Um now we now we have a model for
0: uh, uh marital disintegration uh blame your spouse for the problems in the relationship. <laughs> yeah um i i think this is great one of the things that you mentioned that's important is that the man because to be a man one must be have that fortitude but there's also an aspect of initiative where um yeah you're the head of the family that means you're the one who faces the intruder you're the head of the family that means you're the one who goes and takes the bullet for the family that's what it means to be the head of the family. Uh like you just said you and you're the one who initiates the love and care uh as the man, you love you take care of uh the your wife and children. Mm-hmm. And then she submits to you. It's yeah. it's sort of like you you initiate that and that's an important piece because men want to read these scriptures and they say, well, now uh you know woman submit to your husband submit to me you know and and they're kind of like they want to take a shortcut and that's kind of effeminate, right there because Mm -hmm. uh you want to basically be you want to be the head of the household without any cost to yourself and that's that's not manly so you got to start off with the love and care and protection uh Suzanne is asking um what is the duty of a man to his family also, what does he choose when in conflict between his duty towards his family and that of his profession? Um, if you go to, I, I just want to point this out real quick because it's a, a, a little resource. Um, if you go to meaningofcatholic.com, there's uh, resources. And you, you scroll down here to miscellaneous summary of Catholic doctrine with links to the Summa. And you click on this. And the very first thing is duties of your state in life. And, uh, so there's actual, there is a, a mutual submission, first of all, in marriage, because there is a, um, there are mutual duties yep. that spouses render to each other. Uh, so that's, that's where the mutual submission comes in, but husband is the head and protector of his family. Um, he has the duty to provide enough for his wife to stay home and the children to have proper care. He, he has the duty to administer his family property wisely. Um, head and protector of his family to guide his wife and children so um basically his family comes first but there's a sense in which your profession actually is part of your duties to your family so it, it would seem that in, in a conflict situation between your profession and your family you should choose your profession if and only if your profession actually is directly tied in with you with doing your duties for your family. Otherwise you wouldn't choose your profession, I would I would see. Um but uh what are your thoughts on that, Kennedy? Any thoughts? Well
1: yeah, I mean <clears throat> this is where the virtue of prudence comes in. So what is you know, what does he choose when in conflict between his duty towards his family and his profession? Well it would depend on the severity of that thing, you know, like of hoping that you have communication with your spouse these are, there's so many layers here that you'd have to peel back. I I, I don't know the person's, th- this is probably a hypothetical thing, but let's Depends just say. Depends on the situation. Certainly. Let's just say someone calls in and says, my, you know, we're on like one of those helplines. My husband works too much whatever. It's like, well, first of all, you're going to have to peel back these layers of how did you get here? Have you been communicating? Blah, blah, blah. But, mm-hmm. you know, let's just say you have decent communication and your husband's been a bit of workaholic, which I've been guilty of before, especially when you're trying to get all these projects done. Um. well, The primary duty that you have, I would argue, to your family in this fallen world, because no one's going to give them the sustenance except for you. If you have to work 70 hours a week and your financial situation, let's say, is at the position where you basically depended on that because you're all overextended and things like that. Well, you can't just pull the plug that day and say, you know, heck with it. I'm not going into work tomorrow. And it's like, well, you're not going to get paid. And then we're not going to pay our mortgage. And that's a real problem. Okay. So you can't let your family be out on the street but once you've identified the issue then you're gonna have to say okay how do we peel this back and how do I put my family first okay so it's not it's not a simple thing of you know just quit your job tomorrow and be with your family you're gonna have to obviously balance all the things and that's going to be part of making up for the disorder you know like this is um every time in our lives that we do something sinful or unvirtuous or vicious as you would say um the hardest part is not stopping the thing. The hardest part is riding the ship. You know, it's easy to uh the solution to working too much is very simple in a sense. It just don't work. <laughs> but you can't just not work because you know you have to pay your bills and things like that. So that's gonna take some 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 um some strategy there. But I will say, let's just say a wife does go to her husband and and there is this. Well, the first step towards taking leadership would be the husband saying, I have done this and I have worked too much. I, my job is taking me away from you. Now I've acknowledged this. Now here's my plan to do it. And, you know, that itself would be a win because it changes your perspective on things. I mean, this is, for example, you know, to sort of go much on a tangent here, but, you know, some of the people that work the most are farmers. You know, when you ask a farmer, it's like, how many hours a week do you spend doing things that have to do with your farm? No less than 60 hours a week, always. Now, um, that sounds crazy when you think of your sixty hour a week work a day job. But for some reason for the farm life, it doesn't translate to being a quote unquote workaholic. Um, because it's built into the fabric of the thing that it meshes with family rhythms. It's built into the fabric of it. it's also you're at home, so it could be three hours before eight o'clock rolls around. Okay. And and a couple hours after the kids are I mean, those things. So obviously it's not like it's not like you're gone 10 hours, eleven hours in a row every day. Um, but the mentality there, if, if your husband was working six hours a week and was commuting, you'd think he was never home anyway. So, but the point is, is that, um, the perspective of how the thing is taking place and putting the family rhythms first, it actually makes the, uh, sacrifice seem like it's less. So even there, let's just say he was working too much. I would say, well, first thing is, is there a way to reorient the schedule? Is there a way to appease your family duties and say, OK, I'm going to change this, this and this that puts in these priorities. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't miss dad as much because he's here at these important times. Does that make sense? So um, yeah. part of it's going to be the communication, the perspective.
0: Yeah, good, good one. We got about five minutes left. What else you want to touch
1: on, Kennedy? Um, So the last thing I want to touch on this whole idea of blaming. This is the last part of the chapter. Um, I have a flip of my final paragraph here. Your Adam, your home is a garden, is your garden. Everything is your responsibility and all failures will be worked out on your shoulders. The goal for men is to go from being the old Adam to the new Adam. As a punishment, but also as a penance, the Lord said to Adam, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, cursed is the earth in thy work. With labor and toil shalt thou eat thereof all the days of thy life. Furthermore, Adam's work will be among thorns and thistles, and in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. This is a prefigurement of the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and his work to reverse the original sin. Christ does this with an act of humility so great that he allows himself to be mocked with the crown of thorns. Also the passion begins with the agony in the garden, the sweating of blood from the sweat great weight of sin. Among thorns, our Lord works out our salvation by the blood, bloody sweat of his brow. <clears throat> so, if we are to transition from the old Adam to the new, we must work tirelessly all the days of our life. Um, in order to, uh, let's say, go down this path of virtue, one of the things you find with men who are virtuous in uh virtuous in any aspect of their life again they could be a coach they could be a businessman they could be uh, whatever something um they're always tired (laughs) that's and i know this is like you as well i was talking to jeremiah and jeremiah's like i don't know how tim all does all this stuff and you you one time said to him after church you said so much coffee (laughs) you know like if you are trying to do all of these things um you're going to be tired all the time in some way and i don't mean you should feel run down um but if ever a day goes by and obviously sunday is a day of rest and that sort of thing and we should obviously have time for leisure of course but if ever a day goes by where you think um wow, I could have done so much more today. I did nothing. It's probably a bad day. Even proper leisure will take energy. Like proper leisure involves, um, you know, taking my kids skating. Oh, my goodness. It's like I feel like I'm the Israelites walking across the desert. It's unbelievable. Like I can't believe how difficult it is to get the kids out of the car, trudge across the snow to the rink, Cause we can't hopefully actually soon the passports will be done. We can take it with a ring. That's much easier, but it's like, I'm out there and I'm tying their laces with my fingers are frozen and, uh, I got to put my skates on and the toddler is running off to the playground. I'm but like t- taking them to have leisure is like the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Every time I do it, think about going to the beach. You know, we love to go to, uh, to the beach in the summer and it's like, you got to park and you got to walk. I'm dragging stuff across like a mule, you know, the best days of our lives, I have to exert the most energy. And that makes sense though, because if you're gonna put in, if you're gonna put in it in, if you're gonna put in the energy, you're gonna have a result. So when I um when in this book, one of the criticisms I've had is that, well, this all seems like it's too much. As it is too much. That's the point. We fell from grace, and it's too much for us to do it all on our own. So we have to do as much as we possibly can, which will exhaust us, and then we have to rely on the sacraments. We have to rely on prayer. So I didn't even—I do mention the rosary a little bit in that chapter, how the rosary fights against femininity. And I'll just finish here. Um. Uh, the I think, in my in my opinion, I'd never read this anywhere. This is just my my personal opinion. When Christ whips out the money changers. Um. No. Uh, liberation theologist it's not because he's against capitalism or something <laughs> it's not against money um but there's an economy of sin being sold in the temple at that point you know um uh, and also they're sitting in the court of the Gentiles which means they're actually stopping salvation of those outside of the the, the Jewish people um, there's a, there's a whole reason for that but what does he do he actually sees the problem and then it says he made a cord, of a knotted cord, essentially. So he went somewhere else. He got some materials. And he made this cord with all these little beads and uh, knots in it, something like a rosary. And then he went in and he whipped everybody and he got the scourge of the economy of sin out of the holy place. That's the, that's the message we can take from there. Um, I don't know how long it took Christ to make that scourge of knotted cords. I have no idea. Let's just say it took 20 minutes. I don't know. How long does it take to pray the rosary? About 16 minutes? 12 if you're praying by yourself and you're whispering, you know. Um, The rosary is this thing right here. The rosary is, and these rugged rosaries are actually probably weapon because they're made of metal, but the rosary is that scourge of knotted cords. And uh, when we face a challenge, we take time to leave for 15 or 20 minutes and we go and we run our fingers over those knots in this cord. And then that thing is the scourge that rids the economy of sin from our lives in that moment. And that is um, if I could, you know, you will learn a thousand times more praying the rosary every day on your knees than you will reading my book. Although you should still have my book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but that, I think that's a great, great way to, put this it is more than you can handle that's the point because we are called to do more than we can handle we're called to do more by grace um one thing that you have done here is we've emphasized virtue as uh against the vice of effeminacy Mm -hmm. notice that we never talked about a particular temperament or personality of man because that's another trap Because you can have a different. There's different personalities of men, but they can all be masculine. It's not your your particular personality or that type of thing. It's really uh, the difference between vice and virtue. Um, And there's also a way that I think that like women have bought your book because Mm -hmm. they want to whip their men into shape. And there's certain there's there's sort of a a way in which women can spark that masculine energy in, in men to really become the head of the house, to really sacrifice. um, And they can do so they can kind of speak to their man in a way that only women can. Mm -hmm. And this can be a very positive thing. So um, the point is uh, becoming masculine can also be Uh, something that you work through with your woman, uh, with your spouse, um, you need to take care of yourself, take care of your own business, your own responsibility. Um, but working and communicating with your spouse.
1: So many women have, many many women have brought the book book and, um, and, uh, I, I know couples that actually keep it. And then when things get hard in life, they actually read chapters of it together and they read, okay, what are we doing here? we're being attacked and so on and so forth so nice yeah, for spouses for sure fantastic all right
0: well let's uh it's all the time we have so make sure to buy the book for lent um overcome effeminacy for Lent. it's a great uh thing to do uh, for all men we need to do this to become men overcome effeminacy so let's offer up an our father meditating on the masculinity of jesus christ Mm-hmm. who destroyed effeminacy? He suffered to to do his father's will. So we also must suffer to do our own father's will. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. In nomine Patris, et fili, et sancti. Amen. Pater noster, qui es in ce sanctificator nomen tuum, adveni et regnum tuum, fia voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra.
1: Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, ed emittin obis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimittimus, debitoribus nostris, ene nosum lucas, santa entationem, se divere nosa malo. Amen.
0: In patris et of the spiritu sancti Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.